In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, with your host, Rob Snowett. Take a dose of every day. How am I supposed to stay in a world built on empty ways and the lessons of all the rage? Well, greetings from the new house. I'm sitting here recording this podcast next to my new fish tank. Got uh, probably three dozen caddisflies. I've got a mussel named Arnold. Four snails. The snails and the mussels I bought. Everything else I've caught so far, I've got two leeches, a couple of planaria, and I've got a very hilarious cranefly larva. When I got it, it looked like a Tootsie Roll, and now it's elongated, you know, about the size of a green bean, and it's got these mouth parts that come out where it kind of looks like, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, the Libman Wonder Mop? And it just crawls all through the, the gravel all day long. It's pretty interesting. It's fun to watch these guys. Uh, I collected a lot of this stuff from Holmes Run, which is where they stock trout in northern Virginia. And it took me about three hours to find one scud, whereas I used to be able to flip over a rock and have, you know, 15 to 20 mixed in with crest bugs. But uh, I don't know what happened. You know, there was a chlorine spill last year. But this was above the chlorine spill. 
So let's get to the meat and potatoes of this podcast. This is Series 1, Episode 73. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is the first podcast from the new studios. Hoping to have several interviewees coming up in the next couple of weeks. So I'll get hopefully back on a regular recording agenda. This is the life history of the northern snakehead, Chana Argus. See more scientific podcasts with a focus on local Washington, D.C. fisheries. This fish is a non-native fish with the potential to be invasive. I'll get into that. Everything about these fish screams apex predator and the most adapted fish to be wherever it lives or where it ends up. May 8th, 2002 was the first sighting of the northern snakehead in Maryland when I became aware of them other than in biology of fishes at Mary Washington College in 1997. We had a list of every fresh and saltwater fish found in Virginia. We had to identify them by common name, scientific name, and to the family. And on the bottom of this list was northern snakehead, Chana Argus, Chanaday. And I, I never really, really, you know, gave it much thought, never heard of him back then until I dug that paper out several years ago. I still have a lot of my college documents, and I found the list of freshwater fishes of Virginia. And I'm telling you, I used to have nightmares in college. I would wake up saying Latin names of fish in my sleep because I spent months just doing Latin names, common names, and families. So the northern snakehead was first discovered in the United States and California in 1997. That's all I have on that, but we'll keep going. little background on this fish. Chana Argus is a rapacious primary predator consuming a wide variety of prey besides other fish whose predaceous nature, lack of natural predators, high fertility, and adaptability to a wide range of environmental conditions qualify it as a potentially dangerous invader note potentially dangerous all the people on boats on the potomac river they're not going to hear this so they think they are dangerous fish the worst thing ever no non-native fish belong in our river eating our native bass young man they're a potentially dangerous invader in climatological favorable and resource rich u.s ponds lakes and streams the northern snakehead's broad physiological tolerances, capacity to overwinter, including survival under ice, varied and flexible diet throughout all the life history stages, predatory and competitive nature, high fecundity, and parental investment in offspring gives this species a suit of favorable attributes for establishment once introduced. Chana Argus is considered an injurious wildlife example. Injurious wildlife are defined by the U.S. government as species listed as injurious may not be imported or transported between states, the District of Columbia, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, or any territory or possession of the U.S. by any means without a permit issued by the service. Fish and Wildlife, I believe. Permits may be granted for the importation or transportation of live specimens of injurious wildlife and their offspring or eggs for bona fide scientific, medical, educational, or zoological processes. An injurious wildlife listing 
would not prohibit interstate transport or possession of that species within a state where those activities are not prohibited by the state. And I'll get into that more. But since 2002, it has been illegal to possess a live snakehead in many U.S. states where they are considered a destructive, invasive species. What I'm going to talk about in this podcast, and this one took a while to to, uh, to write, I think the next one I'll do is smallmouth bass and maybe hold off just because, I mean, honestly, I could never end these. I could spend a year just doing research online of a single individual organism and give you as much facts as you can have to learn all about them, how to catch them, where to catch them, when to catch them, what to use, etc. So I decided finally, after several months of writing this, I'm going to get it out to y'all. What I'm going to talk about in this podcast is phylogeny, description, distribution and location, feeding and behavior, reproduction, commercial importance, the bizarre, tackle and gear, fishing methods, and flies. So let's dive right in. These fish belong to the kingdom Animalia, phylum Chordata, class Actinopterygii, which are the ray-finned fishes. Make a note of that, ray-finned fishes. Order Persiforms, or perch-like fish. Family Chanidae, snakeheads, 38 species have been described in this family. Subfamily, uh, I don't know, I have that blank. Genus, Chana. Chana is the Greek for uh, anchovy. It means an anchovy. Argus is the species. So the scientific name of this fish is Chana Argus or C. Argus. You may hear me refer to the fish as the northern snakehead, NSH, or... Chan Argus throughout this podcast, depending on whatever I have in my notes. Two subspecies of Chan Argus are distinguished. C. A. Argus, originating from China and Korea, and C. A., which is Chan Argus, Warpachowski, originating from eastern Mazarasha, also known as the snakehead, also known as the Amur snakehead, the northern snakehead, frankenfish, Delicious fish. What the F was that? Lightning perch. And many other names that people just name them. If you want to put a fish on a menu, snakehead's not really what you want to have. But they say the uglier the fish, the tastier they are. Who was that? Someone was saying that recently to me. I was like, it doesn't matter to me. I don't need them. So physical characteristics and description. They look like a bowfin, Amia calva, and there are several ways we can distinguish them from an Amia calva, one of which I've never seen in the wild. My friend Dalton just caught one somewhere up on the Great Lakes. That thing was huge. Uh, I've only seen bowfin pickled in jars in the Smithsonian and at labs in college. So I've not seen one in over 15 years. Getting old. Their body shape is fusiform. You're going to remember that from the ichthyology or all about fishes podcast. They have a small, or I guess fusiform is like torpedo shape, shape, elongated. They have a small, anteriorly depressed head. Their eyes are above the middle part of their upper jaw, which means they can see things out of water 
and in front of them very, very well. Their mouth is large, extending well beyond their eye. They have villiform teeth. These fish have a lot of types of teeth, but most notably villiform. Those are similar to a largemouth bass, but then you open up their mouth with uh, like a speculum, and you're going to be like, holy crap, I do not want to get my hand anywhere near this thing. This thing is built for latching on and not letting go. They have large canines on the lower jaw and bones on the side of their palate. They do not have an adipose fin. That little fin right between the dorsal fin and the tail fin of a trout, which in some hatchery steelhead are clipped off. Their caudal fin or tail fin more or less truncated, is truncated and it's rounded like a kayak paddle. Shaped like a mitten, not forked like a tuna. It's rounded, very distinctive. Their pectoral fins have 15 to 19 soft rays. When I mean soft, it's like a piece of romaine lettuce when they're out of the water. Thus, they are not able to use them for locomotion out of the water. These fish do not walk across land. So when we tell people we're going for snakeheads, oh man, those things walk across land. Or someone's like, my God, those fish are ugly. Yeah, well... Each his own, but they do not walk on land. So people that are out fishing and saying they're eating all the bass and they're ruining the river, there's other things ruining the river, folks. It's not these fish. Their dorsal fin is elongated, zero dorsal spines. It runs the length of their back. It's soft, so it's in the water. It pops up and it kind of undulates around with the current and the flowing water around them. It's not going to prop up and spike you like, say, a bluegill or a white perch will. They have 49 to 54 dorsal soft rays if you want to count them. If you're not sure if it's a bowfin or not, sure, you can get out your spectacles and get down there and count them. You have plenty of time to do it. They're not going to die. They have zero anal spines. They have a single long anal fin. Let's see how many times I can see the word anal in a podcast. Their dorsal and anal fin terminate at a caudal penuncle, which has 32 to 28 anal soft rays. Large snake-like scales, especially on the head, a very large mouth. Their eyes, furthermore, are located dorsolaterally on the anterior part of their head. So they're kind of on the side like a frog, but for kind of just like a frog. Uh, anterior nostrils. So they can, I don't know if they use their nostrils to breathe. They definitely use their mouth because you see them come up and take a bite. You can use otoliths, which are these, basically it translates to stone bones, uh, to age a snakehead, though the maximum age is not known. Just like I've got Arnold here, I've been reading up on pearl mussels. These things can live to be like 75 years old. There was one in 1934 I was reading that was like 138 years old. That's an old muscle. So the stone bones can be difficult to interpret. You basically have to cut open their head, dig out the otoliths. I believe you bake them, and then you're going to have to put them under probably a dissecting microscope, not a scanning electroscope or a light electroscope. Their growth 
slows down after two years. The max weight in the Ka River in Japan, that is Ka, in 2004 was 17.42 pounds. The max weight in the Yonpung Lake in North Korea in 2005 was 19.84 pounds. The max length recorded has been 100 centimeters. If I had Siri with me, I would ask her what's the difference between centimeters and inches. So I had to convert all the centigrade to Fahrenheit and the centimeters to inches and other parts and kilograms to pounds. One reported fish I don't know remember where was recorded at 59.1 inches. My record is 34 inches, which I still think is is pretty darn good. The max. Or the average length is 12 to 40 inches, with a maximum published weight of 17.64 pounds. So you have different people that have different scales that aren't all adjusted. So you get varying um, lengths throughout the world depending on on who's doing things. And of course, you know the most recent uh, election, North Korea, 99.9 percent of citizens turned out to vote. And wasn't it Kim Jong Il who hit uh, 18 holes in one in a golf match? So I, I really, honestly, wouldn't believe the measurements coming out of North Korea. The maximum length in Temebrek and Tazkutal reservoirs in Kazakhstan was 45.1 inches. On June 1st. 2013 here in Virginia, Caleb Newton of Spotsylvania County caught a 17 pound six ounce, which is the the largest one believed ever caught out of the Potomac River on tackle. We're not talking about the guys over at Whack Factor that are shooting them with bows. Now they're called snakeheads because they have a very distinct coloration. A background color is golden tanto. No, that's a misspelling. Let's laugh at this guy. Golden tan to pale brown, not golden tanto, with a series of dark blotches on the sides and saddle-like blotches across the back, interrupted by the dorsal fin. The species is capable of darkening its background colors to the point of almost obscuring the blotches. These fish are beyond adapted for their environment. And since I just picked up my first trolling motor on a barter, I can go out and look for these guys all myself. Who's excited? I don't have to row and fish at the same time. The upper blotches on the sides are typically separate anteriorly, but more posterior blotches may coalesce with ventral blotches. There's a dark stripe from just behind the eye to the upper edge of the operculum. Operculum in Latin is cap. We refer to it as the gill cover in ichthyology, with other dark stripes below from behind the orbit, extending to the lower quadrant of the operculum. Coloration of juveniles is virtually the same as in adults, a characteristic atypical for many snakehead species. And you can go online and look up all these freak show different snakeheads out there. They are crazy, big, colorful, aggressive fish. What else do I have on them? Golden to tan, pale, dark blotches. Blotches toward the front tend to separate between the top and bottom sections. Let's talk about distribution and location. There are plenty samples in the fossil record 
in what is now Switzerland and eastern France. And you're going to learn why. These fish hang out in the mud, so they probably die over time and just get uh, compressed by the earth and minerals invade the uh, what was then calcified and basically mineralize the body and make what are fossils. So eastern France and Switzerland has a lot of fossil records. They likely originated in the South Himalayan region of the Indian subcontinent, which is modern-day northern India and eastern Pakistan, or the early Eocene epoch around 50 million years ago. They've been around a while. A great river was described on the Sunda Shelf, which allowed them to travel during the Pleistocene. As it dried up, the fish became isolated in these individual locations and speciation began so based on where they were trapped they evolved into their own species adapted to those locations over millions of years and now you have separate distinct populations of different species fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish it's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. By 17 million years ago during the early Miocene, the Chanids the family members had spread into Western and Central Eurasia, and by 8 million years ago, during the late Tortonian, they could be found throughout Africa and East Asia. Now, if you are a geologist, you know that subduction leads to orogeny. That's right. Subduction leads to orogeny. That's not dirty. Subduction is... Downward movement of plate tectonics, which then thrust up. Orogenesis is mountain formation. So orogeny of the Alps, the Pyrenees, and the Himalayas increased air humidity and the intensification of the East Asian monsoon, which facilitated their geographic distribution. More water, the more places they could spread. Now, we know that when the Himalayas formed, it basically altered air currents. And the air currents dried out the savannas in Africa over millions of years and that caused our primitive ancestors in the trees to have to go between trees eventually the trees were mostly wiped out it's no longer a dense forest and we became ground dwellers which is why i'm wearing flip-flops now now i'm going to tell you we had a little gathering here the other night and there is a bottle of full white wine in the fridge on the top shelf And I was looking for some coconut rice to eat for dinner last night, and I barely tapped that bottle of wine, and it fell vertically straight on the top of my bare foot. I'm wearing my Chacos. I will tell you, it was not pleasant. Very, very unpleasant feeling. So if you see me this week, I'm limping because of that. And I jammed my toes between rocks. I was wearing flip-flops, wet waning to get all of my little friends here. And since I've been talking to you, I don't even know where the crane fly larva went to. That thing has crawled all over this tank today. But it's pretty cool. I can sit here and watch my caddisflies like breathing 
and just moving and undulating. Some are stuck to the glass. Some are in the leaves and vegetation. Some are in the rocks. They're mostly hydrocyche, little uh, little green caddis with black heads. Quite adorable, easy pets. Don't tell Doctor Jealous; he'll get je- jealous. So the uh, in Asia, where these fish had distributed through floods. Uh, they traveled from Amur southward to Shijiang and Hanin Island in China. So then they basically evolved to be native to inland waters. Thus, the northern snakehead is native to China, South Korea, Russia. It's been introduced to Japan, the United States, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan as early as 1947. One Asian snakehead has been established in Oahu, Hawaii, since before 1900. That doesn't make sense. One Asian snakehead maybe had been established or one population. These notes are several months old, so I don't know. Don't uh, don't quote me on any of this technically, unless you really want to. It's a podcast. I'm not held liable. I'm doing it for your entertainment and education. They're currently found in seas, bays, gulfs, lakes, and river basins, rice paddies, and ditches. If you don't believe me about the rice paddies, you can watch Zeb Hogan on with the National Geographic, where they basically put a stick in 45-degree angles in the mud paddy and dangle a frog on a hook, and the snakeheads at night come up and eat the frogs and then get caught. It's a pretty cool episode. They cannot tolerate salinity in excess of 10 parts per million, which is weird because they're in the uh, Potomac. And if we ever have a drought, because it won't stop raining, they will be subject to some high saline conditions. Their population expansion is also limited by water temperatures. And we can throw in geographical barriers. So there are physical geographical barriers that prevent them from moving onward. There are saltwater barriers, and we all know that when a freshwater fish goes into saltwater, their cells rupture internally when the salt is pulled, pulling the, the water out of them. Uh, this was osmosis or something. But then you have the fish that go back and forth. Well, they're adapted to it. They, you know, the salmon, the sea run cutthroats, the sea trout. We know those are the brown trout from the previous uh, podcast on a fish. And we also have our brook trout. They all move back and forth. Eels do it too. Striped bass do it. But our striped bass don't really get into the fresh water. They're kind of stuck due to geographical barriers in the tidal section. The northern snakehead's range is between 32 degrees Fahrenheit and 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Cold temperatures can allow establishment of species if they survive winter. They are listed as a warm temperate to a cold temperate species. So their location in the Potomac River is perfect for their lifestyle. Some have reported adverse ecological impacts after introduction. We'll get into that a little deeper later. They are freshwater dwellers, more specifically located benthopelagically, so bottom open water. Chain Argus has a geographic range of 28 to 40, 28 degrees to 53 degrees north and a temperate, I already mentioned the temperature. They can cause damage when introduced as no natural predators exist in these areas. They also can introduce parasites and diseases that the native inhabitants have never seen before. 
kind of like when Christopher Columbus brought over crusty, scabby blankets with smallpox and gave them to the Caribbean Islanders. The preferred habitat of the species is stagnant water and mud substrate and aquatic vegetation or slow, muddy streams. These are lazy fish, and they want lazy water conditions. They're highly adaptable to variable environmental conditions with latitudinal and climatic ranges greater than that of other snakehead species. It is reported that they burrow in mud over winter. NSH may migrate over winter, and I can give you a firsthand account of this. We're friends with a commercial fisherman on the Potomac River, and he had a chance to go out over winter when there was a gap in the freezing of the Potomac, and he had a net laid out in a, a trough that fish use as kind of a highway. And in like February, he caught like a dozen and a half northern snakeheads. So these fish were moving through the Potomac in a channel deep in the water in that really cold winter. Will they lie? What is it? Uh, they will lie dormant in mud during droughts, which gives them the name mudfish. If you watch that Zeb Hogan episode, you'll see he's just in a giant mud pit where they keep them. It's, and they to get them, they fill the, the pit with you know water to loosen the mud. And then they just go knee deep and put their arms in until they find them. It's like kids finding marbles and oatmeal in baby bathtubs. Oh, wait. Was that a UHF reference? Yeah. They can survive in low oxygenated water. So that stagnant frog water, remember hot water doesn't really carry a lot of oxygen. Stagnant water does not really have a lot of oxygen. That's their that's their prime location. They like it there. They can also be transported across the country and overseas if they're wet. The population density can be up to 28 per hectare in Little Hunting Creek near Mount Vernon or an estimated 567 fish in that system. So go to your computer, your phone, put in Little Hunting Creek. It's right off the George Washington Memorial Parkway just north of Mount Vernon and look at it. It's, it's a pretty cool fishing spot, but 28 per hectare or 567 in that entire system. It is apparent that the Northern snakeheads have successfully colonized the Rappahannock river, the second drainage in Virginia to become infested. It remains unclear, but it appears likely that colonization occurred from angular introduction around Ruffins mill pond and dispersion from the Potomac River. So what happens? Remember back in the uh, Ice Ages, big monsoons, and they spread out? Well, let's say you have uh, a major rainstorm. I mentioned in the ICAST podcast where we got uh, the river jump from like 4 to 15 feet in two days or overnight. I can't remember. You've got a massive just push of fresh water that goes into the salt water. So you, now you have more fresh water which is denser than salt water either way it goes out and to the left and right of the stream and it follows the potomac shorelines and they can follow that bulge of water down the chesapeake bay until it goes into feeder streams and then they can swim up those feeder streams and inhabit them 
and then they get cut off once the the floodwaters are gone. So now you kind of have new distinct populations separated by land masses, and maybe over time these fish will reproduce with each other i'm sure there's some inbred ones in there because granted four of them inoculated the entire potomac river so the gene pool can't be too big but if you have enough reproduction which i'll get into then eventually you're going to have genetic diversity and the cohorts will eventually um speciation occur and you'll get maybe different subspecies of them we'll have to find out growth and reproduction Northern snakeheads are unable to hybridize or interbreed with native fishes in the United States. They grow approximately 100 millimeters per year here, which will allow sexual reproduction earlier than in the wild. The fish in the U.S. can reach sexual maturity after one year, which is about a six-pound fish. Brett McRae, TPFR, um... Chagrin River Outfitters just found a brood of juvenile snakeheads in the Sino Canal. So definite proof to reproducing in there. He threw a fly at the babies and pulled out one of the parents. And it was, you know, about a five pounder, which shows that they are reproducing younger here than anywhere else in the world. The growth slows down after the fourth year of life. They mature at the age of two to three years in other locations in lengths of 30 to 35 centimeters. These fish can mate as often as five times a year. Fecundity or amount of eggs produced increases with age. Possibly they might pair into monogamous sets during a single year and they'll spawn repeatedly with a specific mate. They spawn in June and July in their native countries at dawn or early morning and that usually occurs near the surface. Each spawning age female can release up to 1,300 to 15,000 eggs at once, up to five times a year, with an average of 7,300 eggs. I'm no math genius, but that's a freaking huge amount of eggs. That is one fecund female. These fish in the Amur Basin can do up to 50,000 eggs and up to 115,000 in the Yangtze River. Now, I've been told these fish can do up to 100,000 in the Potomac. You've heard that on the podcasts from the Snakehead Tournament with DNR from Maryland and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. These fish build spawning nests by clearing and weaving aquatic vegetation, creating a vertical column of water 60 millimeters to 80 millimeters deep and one meter wide. So I've never seen one. I'm always looking for them because when we're out on the flats, you just see like bald spots, but you never see snakeheads in them. You always throw your fly to the bald spot because there's something just waiting in there right on the edges. It should look like somebody just took a hula hoop and just like carved everything inside of it straight up and down in the river. And then you would find babies in there and mom and pop bring them to the surface to breathe and i'm doing all these hand gestures and my neighbors probably look at me like i'm a complete loony and they want to get the straight jacket and the big net and haul me away and feed me gruel but uh i'm i'm doing the circling they're carving it out and they're going up and down the water column 
They build spawning nests. Uh, let's see. The females discharge eggs over the nest at the surface, which are extremely, um, sorry, they are externally fertilized by males. The eggs are buoyant due to a drop of oil in them. And I show this to my clients when we're out all the time. You'll see like a, a patch of what looks like oil in like a footprint on the shoreline or just floating down or in like a stagnant pool in the creek. And people are always like, oh, that's so unfortunate. That's pollution. Well, it's actually not. It's a diatom, a type of algae, which has a dollop of oil in it naturally to keep it buoyant. So it goes to the surface and that's where the sun is and they can do their photosynthesizing there. So you're not seeing oil all the time. It's most likely, well, not oil from like cars and houses and whatever. It's oil that was made by an organism somehow. And as I mentioned before, these fish will vigorously guard their babies. You put a fly in where a baby is, mama's going to bite it. And I've yet to see this. I mentioned earlier, larger females produce more eggs. The eggs are around one to two millimeter. And you can see these in a picture from 2011 when Andrew Holt and I got one and gutted it and there's a dollar bill next to the egg sack. So the eggs are pelagic. They're not adhesive, so they float. These are not like the shad eggs that sink and stick to vegetation. They're spherical and yellow, which is exactly what they look like when we cut open the egg sack. And apparently they don't taste good. From what I remember seeing maybe on TV, I, I don't know. Fertilization to hatching time depends on the water temperature. Eggs hatch in 28 hours at 87.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, 45 hours at 77 degrees Fahrenheit and 120 hours at 64 degrees Fahrenheit. Northern snakeheads have been found to reproduce in reservoirs in Kazakhstan where plants are non-existent. The fry are 3 to 3.5 millimeters long. Snakehead fry begin to feed on zooplankton once their egg yolk sac has been digested. The fry stay together until the juvenile stage, still guarded by mom and pop, until they can fend for themselves. They're guarded by parents until that yolk yolk sac is fully absorbed. At that point, their body length is 8 millimeters. Then, once they're 8 millimeters long, they will spread out in groups. Now, they don't want to be too close to each other because then there's competition for food. The juveniles begin to feed on small crustaceans, insects, and insect larvae. They have subbranchial chambers become active at that point, and they can start breathing air. Aerial breathing occurs at the length of 18 millimeters. Parental care continues throughout post-larval stage. They switch to a predominantly piscivorous diet, which is going to be about 90% of their diet at 30 centimeters of length. And I've only seen one juvenile snakehead in the Potomac. It was like the size of a Hebrew national hot dog. As a member of the tribe and the chosen people, I'll use that as my reference for the brand of hot dogs. It was the same width. It was green, yellow, orange. It was pretty cool looking. Let's talk about feeding and behavior. Northern snakeheads do not walk on land. I can't tell you how many times people say, what are you fishing for? Snakeheads. <gasps> That's the fish that walks on land. And I'm like, lady, go listen to my next podcast. Get out of my way. Come on. I'm trying to fish here. They compete with native fishes 
and established non-natives in introduced waters. Oh, so they're eating up all your your native largemouth bass in the Potomac? Wow, that's interesting because largemouth bass were put in here in like 1856. They're not native. These fish are apex predators. They're mostly piscivorous. No evidence suggests that they are any more voracious than the bass that are already existing in great numbers in the Potomac River. If anything could eat all the fish in the river, bass would have done it over a hundred years ago. These fish, the northern snakeheads, will feed on other fish up to 33% their body size. Start tying up some bigger flies, kids. They may feed in schools. Now, that's a scary thought. Northern snakeheads hunting together. They are crepuscular. Crepuscular meaning active at low light, early morning, late afternoons. Which is unfortunate because most of the boat ramps here close at you know this time of year. It's uh, We got July 29 going, which means I've got like two days left to get my car inspected before I get a ticket. You got to do that here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So low light. They feed in vegetation close to shore. When we sight cast to them, they are usually cruising within six to eight inches of the shoreline. And they look like an eel. And they're going laterally along the shoreline. And uh, we didn't see any this past weekend. Water is crystal clear because we had one week of no rain. The trip out before that, I think we saw seven in an entire day. They're, they're elusive. That's all I can say. And and we'll get to that, why fly fishing is so difficult, why they're elusive to us. But, hey, I've got that trolling motor, so things might change. Where am I? They feed in vegetation. They may make grunting noises like a pig while hunting. Let me rephrase that. These things make sounds while they're hunting. Now, if they're in groups, are they doing this to communicate with each other? That makes them even more freaky. Think about that. This apex predator is like a velociraptor, and it's communicating with its other freak show buddies on how, where, and what to do when they're hunting. They may make clicking sounds as they rise to the surface to breathe. The species has the potential to wipe out a small pond and stream ecosystem, moving from failed ecosystem to failed ecosystem as the available prey becomes exhausted. Now, how they move? Well, if it's somehow downhill, like let's say you drop one, they can flop their way back into the water. Maybe a flood will take them from one stream to the next. I don't know if they're intentionally moving to get more food. But basically, once they eat everything in the pond, if they're in a small location, they screw themselves. They hunt mainly in the morning and the evening, so they're crepuscular. They're thrust feeders. Now, go to YouTube. Look up snakehead feeding. There's some crazy Russian videos where people just drop, like, goldfish in a 40-gallon empty tank. There's no gravel, just snakeheads. And these things lunge and will either bite a fish in half or just suck that thing in before you even know what happened and um i need my father-in-law to translate for me because it's russian and i only know the bad words and i can't read them anyway so just go to youtube pause if you want come back in, in 10 minutes there's some crazy snakehead feeding videos and you watch those because you want to see how they feed so you know how to tie your flies where to put the hook 
where to have the tails. Do you want them articulated, hook in the back, hook in the front? Um, your fly design should be based on how, where, when, and why they feed. And you should have blueprints of the flies you create like I do. I've been working on a dragonfly pattern for like two years now, and I finally just sat down and tied the first prototype, and it looks pretty cool. Let's see, where else? Thrust feeders, uh, it's a typical ambush predator that lies in wait for its prey on the bottom. So my second snakehead I caught was right on the edge of the spatter dock, not what Justin thought was spider dock. Spatter dock, it's a type of lily. It's very fibrous, like celery. And these fish, just like a largemouth bass, will be backed into it. And if something swims out in front and along it, they can lunge out, grab it, and then just kind of back their way back into the weeds. But you have to find them there, and it depends on what tide. We'll talk about that later. So juveniles eat zooplankton, insect larvae, small crustaceans, and the fry of other fish. Juveniles consume plankton, aquatic insects, mollusks when small. As adults, they mostly feed in other fish. This is redundant. How about this? You want to talk about being freaks? They eat each other. I told you how if they eat everything in the pond, they'll eat each other. Northern snakeheads can become cannibalistic on young if food resources are depleted. That's messed up, dude. The largemouth bass fishery appears healthy in the Potomac River, and several recent years of average or above average year classes should result in continued high rate catches. They are not eating largemouth bass in the river. Doesn't matter what the dude tells you at the boat ramp. They're not eating largemouth bass. It's environmental factors. It's dirty water. It's pollution. It's overfishing by the bass tournaments. It's dudes using five-aught hooks to catch a bass when I'm using a size 10 curved shrimp scud hook on a wormy to catch the same size bass. Dude, you don't have to use a five-aught hook. That's as thick as a coat hanger. Um, yeah, you're damaging those fish when you got all your, your crankbaits too. You can tell I'm, I'm adamant about the fly part. I'm not the terminal tackle dude. Let's see. What do these fish eat? Let's go with the invertebrates first. Things that lack a backbone. Crayfish, dragonfly nymphs, beetles, amphipods or scuds, dragonfly larvae, and for some reason, I have beetles again. So maybe they eat beetles twice as much. They're eating Ringo and George. Fishes. All right. Fungulids. These are your banded killifish and mummachogs. If you're going to throw a fly in the Potomac River for snakeheads, you want it to look like a banded killifish. I'll spell that for you in case you don't know it. Banded killifish, B-A-N-D-E-D, K-I-L-L-I-F-I-S-H. They are four four to five inches long, and they have vertical bands on them. So you want to tie a – what I do is a super hair. It's synthetic clouds or material, and you can take light brown, turquoise, white, and olive – and cut about five inches off and then roll them in your fingers to blend the colors together. You could probably do this with bucktail too. And then you tie a super clouser and you take a Sharpie and you make lots of little bands on it. Granted, it hasn't worked yet. Uh, the last two I caught were on straight up chartreuse and white clousers. But it's that size. 
I think it's more of the size than the color and the pattern. But that's just me. I've only been researching these freak shows since 2004 and trying to catch one nonstop for like the past 11 years. So that is just my opinion. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Centrarchids, minnows, they like to eat minnows, so baitfish, American eels, bluegills, pumpkin seeds, white perch, common carp, sharp rays, carp, goldfish, amur gobies, common roaches, zanders, you heard about those on the iCast podcast with Marianne, it looks like a walleye, loach and bream, genus abramus. So some of those are what's in our river here, some is what they eat internationally other things frogs so the the terminal dudes they get more quote-unquote blow-ups on spro frogs than anything else rats muskrats crayfish i already mentioned that turtles and birds i do believe our friend morgan at tightline tales of a fly fisherman gutted one and had a purple martin in its belly now what does uh what out there eats a snakehead? Well, not me, obviously, but humans, birds, and blue catfish. The, they are waiting for somebody to catch a 100-pound blue catfish in the Potomac River. Think about that. 100 pounds. What does that eat? That thing can eat a three-foot-long snakehead. I've never seen an osprey or bald eagle with one in their talons. They usually have shad and perch and bluegill and goldfish. But I'm assuming, you know, they, they, they catch them when they come up to breathe. Here's a quote from uh, BassResource.com from my friend Andrew. You see him all over the Potomac River. That dude is an absolute animal. Quote, I always check the stomach contents when cleaning them. I found a few large sunfish, some crayfish, a duckling, a mouse, a small muskrat, and a few frogs. Most often, though, I find large numbers of small bait fish, like killifish or dace, even in the larger ones. Once, while fishing at Mallows Bay in Maryland, I hooked a snakehead on a horny toad, and it broke free. One of the horny toad legs was missing when I got it back to the boat. About three weeks later, I caught a snakehead in the same area, brought it home, and found the leg in its stomach. That's not Andrew Holt. This is our, our Google friend, Andrew. That's pretty impressive. So start throwing muskrat flies. Commercial importance. Snakeheads have the ability to survive out of water, which has given the lore as a special fish, which then translated to the beneficial properties of eating them when sick. The fish must be freshly killed to retain the most benefits if you're going to eat them for the medicinal purposes. In other parts of the world, they're farm-raised as a food source. I had a client from Bombay, and he said that they just raise them in pens where it's just full of them. Like, you can walk across their backs. They're often sold alive in fish markets and pick your own fish from a restaurant tank. 
the eggs are utilized for human consumption. Singapore alone imports more than 1,200 tons of northern snakeheads a year. Some places are kept as pets. I don't know if I told the story. I was hanging out at the boat ramp at Riverbend Park above Great Falls on the Potomac. And this guy had a little like homemade motorcycle. The thing was like a toy. We started talking. He's like, yeah, I used to have a snakehead back in the 80s. Until my wife's cat decided it was going to drink some water out of the fish tank. And that snakehead lunged and, and swallowed its head. And I was swinging the snakehead, hitting the head against the fridge until it let go of the cat. He's like, then my wife made me get rid of it. Let that soak in. They're raised for medicinal purposes, often released when they grow too big for pets or when floods wipe out aquaculture and the fish are distributed to another body of water. Birds may have introduced them by dropping them in other parts. So that could be a theory as to how they got in the Occoquan Reservoir here, how they got into Lake Braddock and Burke Lake, but most likely... It's dummies that are putting them in buckets, bucket biologists. You put them in a smaller body of water. It's easier to catch them. You can make more money. Northern snakeheads are known to carry up to 18 specific parasite species. In aquaculture, they are raised and are known to be riddled with parasites. They introduce parasites to Japanese waters. Intentional release by Asian food importers to establish harvestable stocks of the snakehead to supplement or reduce foreign import of the highly desirable food product has been known. Introduction of snakeheads ridden with parasites can introduce parasites to other species. So you put them in a new body of water where they haven't been. Fish that don't have their parasites can now get them. Moreover, its native range of 24 to 53 north and temperature of 0 to 32 to 80-something, 80 86, indicates a species that, if introduced, could establish feral populations throughout most of the contiguous United States and possibly some waters in adjoining Canadian providences, eh? Let's talk about the bazaar. These fish can stay out of water for three to four days at a temperature of 50 to 59 degrees centigrade, which obviously I did not get to Siri today to have that one converted. So you're going to have to do that at home, folks. Juveniles are known to migrate up to one quarter mile on wet land to other bodies of water by wriggling with their bodies and fins. They're obligate air breathers. Snakeheads use a subbranchial organ located behind and above the gills with a bifurcated ventral aorta, which permits aquatic and aerial respiration. They prefer to breathe atmospheric oxygen than use their gills in the Potomac. Parent fishes are known to sacrifice themselves to protect their young. The young fish are said to rush to feed upon their mother after their mother gives birth and is temporarily unable to catch prey. My friends over at Whack Factor, Austin, you may have seen this on social media over the winter. He found a frozen snakehead in ice, frozen in a solid block of ice. When he chipped the ice away, the fish started flopping around. That's why this is titled The Bazaar. Chef Chad Wells of Alewife in Baltimore cut one open and had a battery in its stomach. I had a client, the only client ever to catch one, had, that fish had styrofoam stuck in its throat. 
The most recent two that I caught when I was taking the hook out, they completely flattened their head where it looked like a shovel, like a bonnet head shark. It went flat and to the side and it freaked me out. Like their eyes went back in their head and it looked like you dropped an anvil on their head. I I don't know what that was about. It's hard to crack their skull. We learned that. I got one of those $16 fish bats from Bass Pro. Seven hits to kill one. Seven. And I'm talking as hard as you can hit them. It took seven hits to kill one. They're known to secrete mucus that helps reduce desiccation or drying out and facilitates cutaneous breathing. So they might be able to breathe through their skin. I did not find more information about that, but cutaneous breathing. I would have called it cutaneous respiration, but I'm just a nerd with a microphone. It was thought that snakeheads came from the sky during monsoons as they would appear in the bottom of dried ponds after the rain. And I have a note. See National Geographic special. Here's a cool one. So they used to ship them from China to Canada in cardboard boxes. A shipment of fish from China to Canada then to Seattle in 2001 contained live fish the whole time it was out of water. These fish went in a cardboard box across the Pacific Ocean, were then put in a truck and driven from Vancouver to Washington. The whole time out of water, they were capable of vigorous movement. Let's see. Uh, The fish were not killed as instructed when they came across the U.S. border, as discovered by a U.S. Fish and Wildlife inspector. 80 of the 100 fish were placed in a deep freeze to kill them for 30 minutes, the majority of which were flopping around when they took them out of the freezer. That's it for the freak show part of them. They are truly just a bizarre fish. So let's talk about how, do you want to go fish for them? I mean, good luck. The John Odenkirk said it's nearly impossible to catch them with a fly. You're going to need a quiet boat, a paddleboard, a kayak, a canoe, my stealth craft. I mean, geez, the name says stealth. You want a boat that doesn't make a wake, doesn't make sound. You want to sneak up on these ambush predators in that soft, quiet water. These are not fish below a waterfall where you can stomp around and make noise. They know you're coming. They can hear you. They can see you. These fish make eye contact with you. The last one we saw, we were casting to it. It was closer to me than the tips of the oars. And it was not scared of the boat. It was not scared of anything. Uh, it just it just knew we were there and had no interest in the flies. We put uh, frogs and clousers on it with no luck. I'm going to say you need a 9-foot 8-weight rod. The Bass Recon, Temple Fork Outfitters, Esox, or Mangrove Rod. Um, they're pretty stiff rods. You want the sage bass rod, something that can throw big flies or soft, quiet flies into the weeds and drag something out of the weeds. If you don't know what spatter dock is, Justin, it's not spider dock. I'm telling you, it's like the worst stuff. And plus, when you go through with a boat, all the beetles get on you. You want a soft landing line. I used to throw real outbound lines, and I think that splashed too hard and scared them away. I've modified my technique now to regular weight forward lines. I'm not using bass tapers anymore. And I have spooled up my six weight rod with clear floating line. It's a 10 year old plus line. I found it in storage 
which is now my house. I've got all this gear here. It's fantastic. And uh, I'm going to try that now. So when I cast over them, there shouldn't be a shadow. You want a long leader. We're talking like stealth and not letting these fish know that you're there. No need for a bite guard. These teeth are not lacerating teeth. They're not like saltwater fish. They're not like pike or musky, I guess. Not that I have any experience with them. They're not lacerating. These are teeth that hold on and don't let go. So we've never encountered one that that breaks line. I'm usually going to use a 14-pound tippet. Um, 12 is about the lightest I'll go. Berkeley Vanish is what I've been throwing. You're going to need pliers. These fish do not open their mouth. They will hold your fly in their mouth. I tried using hemostats to pry them open. It's just not that easy. So I'm using P-Line fishing scissors I got off of Amazon. And I'm going to post a picture of the new ones I want because these are like 20 something dollars. You know, I love some of the fancier brands. But um, like the Three Tond, were they the ones with the, the sticky rubber grip? I can't remember. But either way, uh, I've got bills to pay. I'm paying two mortgages right now. We have not sold our old house. So I'm not buying expensive. And these things are doing just fine. They cut line. And oh, while we're talking line, I wanted to start off the podcast with saying, um, still haven't got a chance to do the line cutters re-podcast, but I've been using them for about two weeks now, and it's a freaking awesome product. I'll do a blog post on those, but definitely get yourself line cutters with a Z. So pliers for cutting line, opening their mouths, smashing barbs, etc. You might want quote-unquote boga grips because... You're just going to want to hold them. Take cool pictures. You can't hold them with your bare hands. They're so slimy. You want a trash bag if you're going to take them home to eat them. Everyone says you should eat them. They grow so fast, they don't harbor the toxins in the Potomac River that are going to make you sick. And they produce such mucus. You can go to my YouTube and see when Trent and I caught one with a net. And the second I pulled it out of the net, it was dripping with mucus like it got slimed on Ghostbusters. So where to find them? Springtime, we know that they are going to migrate. One-third of the population in each body of water will redistribute themselves either to find mates or new locations to reproduce. So at any point in the during the shad run, one-third of them will be moving up the Potomac River. Those are the ones we see at our feet in the eddies where we're fishing for shad. So springtime, they really don't seem to be biting out of hunger. It's more of an aggressive bite. So just whatever you can do, just get a big, sharp hook in front of them with a fly on it and just piss them off and they should bite. Don't floss them. That's not cool. That is not – there's no challenge in flossing a fish. There's no challenge in snagging them. Though every – no. And honestly, the park service says they have better things to do than poach the snaggers, the guys out there with the pitchforks, the bows, the spears, the hand nets, the dip nets, the Cuban yo-yos. I know it's a defensive word, but that's what it's called. And whatever else you're using to catch them. Because um, they come right up to shore, they come up to breathe, and these guys have you know, weighted treble hooks. They lower them over them on the lateral side uh, and yank up, hook them in their gut, and drag them on shore. And they're not killing them. They're putting, you know, eight or nine in a trash bag 
Whether they're selling them to restaurants or dumping them other bodies of water, I don't know. Theoretically, you can put that thing in a cardboard box or a paper bag and drive anywhere in the continental United States in four days and stock new bodies of water, which is what the big fear is. Did I even get to the Lacey Act? It's like I skipped a whole section. Commercial importance. So the Lacey Act, which I mentioned earlier, I'll go back up to the top. Bear with me. Okay, under the Lacey Act, Section 18 U.S.C. 42 states that uh, it's illegal to possess a live snakehead with a fine of up to or a fine of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So don't get caught with a live one. You can hold them, take a picture. Just don't have a live one in your boat, in your cooler, on your stringer. You will be in some deep poop if they bust you. They obviously don't where I live, but they might. So summertime right now, there's a lot of non-native vegetation, the milfoil and the hydrilla. So they are inside these uh, spots where they can ambush. They are going to be along the shorelines in the spatter dock and the pickerel weed in the the wild rice, um, all these different aquatic vegetations, SAV, subaquatic vegetations. And that's mostly at high tide. They're going to be back up. Like when you look at the shore and you see a swamp that goes back 50 feet, they're 48 feet back there. You couldn't get there with a boat. You couldn't walk there. You could, uh, spinning guys can get back there. They can, you know, with their bait casters launch something, but we can't do it. It just doesn't work with our tackle. We are at a disadvantage, you could say, that we're using single hooked flies with 12-pound tippet on delicate rods where these guys are throwing just insane nine-pointed lures, weedless stuff on these rods with unbreakable line that are just made for pulling stuff out of the weeds. And they've got trolling motors and fish finders and temperature and depth and this and that and what's and what's and who's it's, and they have the advantage over us. I'd ask uh, Arnold here if he had any opinions on that, seeing that he's a, or she, or it lives with them, but uh, I don't even know where his valves are yet, being a bivalve. Enough with you, Arnold. Okay. So fishing methods, stealth, no sound, no movement. Limit those false casts. If you can do one cast to the back and shoot your line that fish can only see your fly one time and not get scared. Fish a bad cast. I always say this when we are bass fishing and snakehead fishing. I don't care if you throw it two feet in front of the boat. Fish it. You never know what's down there. Oh, you hit the wrong rock and it bounced off of a log? Well, you know what? There might be the fish of a lifetime there. Just because it's not where you want it to go, you never know. We're fishing brown water. We're brown lining. You don't know what's down there? Go for it. Fish a bad cast. Sight casting, well, that's pretty darn hard. You see them when they come up to breathe or when you spook them. It's very rare to see one just sitting there. And when you do, your heart heart is racing, your bowels are clenching, you're perspiring. And um, as my daughter says, Dada, why you go crazy when you see big fish? Uh, I tell her, it'll happen to you. But yeah, I I usually kind of uh, freak out and we usually blow something because it's such a rare opportunity just to see a snakehead just chilling. And every time they ignore it so far, we're still trying to crack that code. 
But I'm still hoping the gutless frog on the Matsuo sickle hook is going to be the meal ticket. We're going out tomorrow. So I got the trolling motor. I'm going to put the wife on the trolling motor. The brother-in-law can spot fish because he's tall. And my daughter will just be casting a five weight as she loves to do. Look for places they're going to back into. I mentioned before they're they're backed into those those uh, like, like like alleyways. I mentioned in a previous podcast, it's like an alley where they're like a mugger, and they're going to get the unsuspecting passerby. That's exactly what you want to look for. Fish, fishy locations. That's it. Flies. I already mentioned the clouser minnow, super clouser bucktail, anything from like one to four inches long. Uh, gutless frogs, my curly tail Naki. I'm still trying to get. So I've gotten one on the curly tail. I've gotten them on a Clouser, and I've gotten one on a uh, like a Jumbo John Stonefly nymph. As odd as it sounds. Um, what else have they been caught on? I'm still trying to get them on top water. I'm still trying to get them on my Snallygaster worm, and these are all flies that I've kind of you know developed myself. For fishing these situations. I'm going to take the mic out of the stand and sit back. My back's been hurting me. So they are piscivorous. So anything that looks like a fish. There are so many bait fish patterns out there. Keep playing with things. Uh, Kiwi muddlers. Tequilis. Anything you think is big and pushing of water. When I remember John Odenkirk said. It's not that important what you use. It's that Because these things are voracious. They are... Not very selective. They just happen to prefer mummichogs and killifish. But as long as he said, like, color, don't worry about it. It's whatever you can put in front of them, they'll eat. And if they don't eat, it's because they don't want to. If you, one's going to eat, it's going to eat whatever you throw at it. So, yeah, you can look at the Umqua catalog. You can look at the Orvis, LL Bean. You can, you know, if you want cool flies to look at, Pat Ellers. I want to get him on the podcast. That's where I came up with the, the Reaper fly. It's his. So that's it for flies. You know, those that's what I throw at them. If you look at my summertime, I just call it the bass box. It's uh, gutless frogs, clousers, curly tails, reapers, snallygasters, damsel nymphs, and scorpion bugs. You know, fish here are not too selective, so that's what I go with. Um, I'm sure there's more things I wanted to say. So lures that the, the bass guys are using, they're using the spro frogs. Of course, I'm going to tell you, we're going to go with... Uh, now, you can do this with a fly rod. Look up Matsuo America, M-A-T-Z-U-O-A-M-E-R-I-C-A, and it's the Nano Croaker. It's a tiny little frog, and you can throw it on an eight weight. It is more weedless than any weedless fly you're going to be throwing. Trust me on it. You can pull it through the lily pads, and it's not going to get hung up. They use chatterbaits, Senko worms, crankbaits, those horny toads, um... And they get them all the time. They're considered a nuisance fish to the bass guys. I don't know why. When you're going after two and three pound fish and you get like a 14 pound fish, what are you complaining about? And there's a book. Um, I can't think off the top of my head, but it's kayak fishing for northern snakeheads. It's from a guy in Baltimore. He breaks it down. He's very successful. He uses a kayak. There's also um, Captain Mike Starrett. If you want to go out and conventional fish for them. It is Indian Head Charters. He's a very funny guy. Uh, I met him recently at a talk. And that's it for this podcast. I've been waiting to do this for months. Um, 
hopefully this is the last snakehead podcast because you're all probably like enough with it dude but that's it jason they're coming your way so all those bass flies i sent you the scorpion bug use the uh the 10 square foot ball of purple chenille i sent you to tie up some worms they'll be in your backyard soon they're going to be in all the lakes in northern virginia soon so be prepared for that People are slowly stocking them in other bodies of water. These fish constantly amaze us. They've only been in the river for 11 years, so we are still at the cusp of learning about them. We haven't even started cracking the code on fishing for them yet. So you're going to have to stay tuned, follow Instagram, social media, and just stay tuned. That's it for episode 73. I don't know what the next one will be uh, other than interviews, so I'll have to you know think about that. All right, Jason, do your thing. Bow, bow, bow. Bow. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. Watch Waypoint TV's Great Outdoors Month celebration presented by Battery Tender every Tuesday in June from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Join us for land management tips, family hunts, and conservation-centric films as we show our appreciation for the great outdoors. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. In wild country... 
rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.